Greetings, Ray's community. I am coming in live from the RV in Missoula, Montana today, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Kerry Bada, who's the Assistant Vice Chancellor of University Development at NC State University, North Carolina State University. Welcome, Kerry. Thanks for having me. Um, I was commenting uh, earlier, I always, I love the Vice Chancellor title. I, I think that that's way cooler than vice president. Can we all agree on that? Is that something you were looking forward to? It sounds pretty fancy, actually. It sounds very academic. I love it. Uh, well, welcome to the show. And I'm excited to get your perspective because uh, most of the people that we've hosted have worked for the most part in the higher education advancement sector. And you've worked in a variety of both nonprofit and healthcare settings. Uh, and you are just coming off of uh, a pretty incredible giving day uh, at, in the midst of what has been a challenging 2020 on many fronts. And so we will get into that. But I first have to ask you, I'm not sure I've ever heard of a BA in human relations before, which I understand is what you studied at St. Joseph's College in Brooklyn. True. But I also cannot imagine a better degree for your line of work. So tell me about going to St. Joseph's and deciding to study human relations and what led you on this path into advancement leadership. Oh, God, it's a good question. Um, and it's true, it's not a very common degree. It's, I guess, code for uh, sociology and psychology and um, your basic liberal arts. I'm not sure what I want to do um, career. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And this whole COVID thing has confirmed that I made the right decision to not teach. Um, that has been an interesting experience, to say the least. And I knew that I wanted to do something to make a difference and, and see the value of investing in something that benefited people. Uh, my, first, uh, my first job was at the Muscular Dystrophy Association and I loved it. I loved the discipline of the more calls you make, the more money you raise. Um, and from there, I expanded into healthcare um, and worked with a lot of different boards and small hospitals and large health systems and academic medicine and found myself in higher education, which I really love. I want to go back. I mean, you just said something that I find interesting. The more calls you make, the more money you raise. It sounds like that was instilled to you when you were working uh, with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Is that something you still believe? Or, I mean, just tell me about that or who, who kind of drilled that into you? Yeah, I think you really just, the fundraising, just like anything else is a discipline and it is, um, it's something that takes you back to basics. I think when things can get very complicated, you have a board, you have a dean or you have a department um, and competing priorities. And the fact is, is the more donors you reach out to, the more people that you connect with, the more stories that you tell about your mission the more people you're going to engage in supporting that mission, the more people who will do that for you. And um, it was a really simple message that when I find myself kind of trying to figure out which way is north, you just go back to that. Interesting. Was there a specific mentor or boss there that sort of had created that culture? Because that's not common. I mean, there are a lot of folks who'd argue it's not about volume. You know, it's really about long-term relationship building? Um, I mean, is there an argument there or maybe you don't yeah, have to? Sure. It's two-sided argument, right? So MDO is very much grassroots. And so in that, in that realm, it is about volume similar to annual giving, right? So it is about the messaging and the 
timing. And, um, and so it was very much that type of fundraising. I would say in terms of a mentor who helped me translate that discipline into something more um, specific and concrete with major gifts, it would probably be Lance King when I worked at Stony Brook. And he's been, you know, at major institutions everywhere. And it always comes back to what did I do to raise money today? And when you think about on one hand, the very grassroots, you know, who might be a supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association, for example, there's obviously certain interests or signals that you might try to, to take a look at. But when you contrast that with the higher ed sector, where at least from an alumni and parent giving perspective, it's such a defined population. It's really, really clear. Um, I don't know, any uh, aspects of one versus the other that you like or that you found more challenging or, or exciting? It was actually, I think, part of the fun for me. And, and um, I think it goes back to the question when you ask a lot of donors, why did they give? Um, most of them will say, because I was asked. And I think the person that asked them sometimes matters, but I think it just depends. When you think about your own philanthropy right now, are you giving to your alma mater, your church, your kids, Girl Scout or Boy Scout troop. It's, you know, when you ask, do you give? And then do you continue to give to those things? Or what has happened that's been meaningful to you that makes you continue to give? So at MDA, we had 42 neuromuscular diseases that we were raising money to provide patient care support and research for. So there were families who were very invested in this because the money stayed in their community. Um, one of them was ALS and so, you know, everybody saw what happened with the ice bucket challenge. That was after my days, but that is really what happens when you have something that impacts you so significantly that you're not afraid to tell the story and ask your friends and neighbors. And MDA was very much like that. The hospitals was a little bit different, right? People had alignment with their physician. They really cared about the person who was taking care of them and their health or their family's health. And you are right in higher education, the, um, the alumni piece, really what was the biggest surprise to me was that it is a lifelong relationship and it changes over time as, um, as you go through your own life, your change with your, or your relationship with your alma mater can change too. Well, I'm, I'm interested because it looks like you, uh, your higher education advancement leadership really started with your alma mater. And I'm curious when you think about your own alumni journey sort of post-graduation, early career, and then coming back full circle, what that was like. Because I imagine, I mean, what I've learned from folks who have gone on to work with their alma mater is you obviously have this one impression from the student experience and the culture, maybe homecomings, reunions. But then when you're on the inside, you get the whole, like the real deal, right? And, and so that can be somewhat um, exciting. It can be a little bit jarring, right? It's not just the... <laughs> the wholesomeness that is your own collegiate experience, but it's like the belly of the beast. And so what was, what was it like kind of getting on the inside and anything stand out from, from that experience? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it was the peak behind the curtain, right. And, and some of the, my own perceptions of the student body or the student experience were very different than what the today's students were experiencing. And, it was much more rewarding and inspiring to go back there and see what the impact had been than it was for me to actually be a student there. Um, what, do you so, mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, what, um, I guess, 
you're just saying with more context and perspective, you're able to appreciate certain aspects of the community that maybe as a student, you're just not thinking about? Yeah. I mean, when I was there, I, you know, was working and just wanted to finish my degree and, you know, be that human relator and, um, and coming back around on the outside, I didn't invest a whole lot of time into social experience at that college. That was not my really, you know, where I have my degree from is not really where I experienced my undergraduate college experience. So coming back there and really wanting to um, see uh, the impact that they were having and, and see that these, a lot of them were first generation college students. Most of them was largely a community commuter school, easy for me to say. And, um, and these are kids who would not have gone away and they probably wouldn't have gotten a degree if they didn't go to St. Joe's. And so you spent a, uh, a couple of years there and then an opportunity emerged to make a pretty big move to the, the Raleigh area um, mm-hmm. to join NC State. And specifically, uh, there was a leadership opportunity in the Textiles Foundation, which is, for those who aren't aware, uh, one of the real uh crown jewels of of the institution. And I just kind of love your perspective on taking that leap, not just professionally, but geographically and what what stood out as you made that uh, transition. Um, Yes. So that was, I was at a point, you know, I think so much, so many of us come to kind of a crossroads at a young child and was trying to decide what was the right move for me career-wise and family-wise. And at the same time, St. Joseph's made it pretty easy by having some leadership turnover and deciding not to embark on the campaign that I initially, you know, went there to do. Um, So I kind of recognized that it was the right timing. It was good timing for me to check it out. And I had met um, Brian Sisko, who's the vice chancellor of uh, advancement at, at NC State. And um, I met him at a case conference years before that, a few years before that. And um, and we had, you know, stayed in touch and I called him up and said, I think we might need to have a different kind of conversation. What, you know, um, what opportunities are you hiring for? I'm watching you launched your, you know, $1.6 billion campaign with a billion already written. It's like such an exciting time. Um, so textiles was something that wasn't really on my radar. And Mary, before, still- yeah. before we dive into textiles, I mean, it's interesting that, that you talk about the importance of kind of keeping that that relationship alive and you calling him up and suggesting, hey, there might be an opportunity here for me to make a move. Um, was that easy to do? Was it nerve wracking to do? I mean, were you putting out calls to five people like Brian or, or had you just felt a, a real connection um, with him as a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, somebody once said to me that most people spend more time planning their family vacations than they do their careers. And it really resonated with me where I'm like, if you're running all of that to the ground and checking it out, but you're not really planning your next step and and thinking about where you want to be, you're not doing yourself any justice. Um, So yes, I had more than one conversation. I had explored, you know, the Charlotte area and then several of the other institutions. And Brian was the only one who had had a relationship that I met him before and stayed in touch. The others, it was kind of a, I'm reaching out because I have a skill set that might be of interest to you. If you want to have a conversation and exploratory discussion, let me know. I wasn't in a rush. I wanted to wait to find the right fit for me, family, timing, all of those things. And so Textiles Foundation is not 
the first thing people think of when they think of, you know, making a, a career move in, in higher education. So very specific uh, program at a very specific place. Uh, but it sounded like there was a lot of momentum building around this campaign and it was the right time. Well, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. It was a chance. It was one of those things where it was a smaller team. The scope was a little smaller. They were raising less money, but I felt like there was something there because it was a separate foundation. And that was an experience I had not had in the past, but part of a larger university. So to me, the opportunity was just as much um, you know, the, the fundraising and getting to know North Carolina and being able to, you know, make an impact on an industry that was really important to the heritage here, as it was the operational structure and support of that foundation, which, um, which was interesting and fun. It was the first time, you know, for me working with a foundation that actually was doing their own investments and, um, was had their own accounting. So I, you know, I saw things and experienced things I hadn't in the past. And it's got to be interesting when you go from such uh, specific fundraising objectives like MDA on one side, mm -hmm. Textiles Foundation, there have to be some fun facts you've picked up along the way. What should I know about textiles that I don't or textiles at NC State in particular? So textiles are everywhere. And what you should know about them is like you can't unsee it once you do. You start taking a look into it and it's like you go to put your seatbelt on in your car, textiles, the headliner in car, <laughs> textiles. Is this a non-woven, the masks? Like all of these things are um, carbon fiber, science, engineering. It's like the crossroads of all of those things live in, um, in the textiles industry. It's really, really interesting. Love it. Any, I don't know, memorable gifts or experiences from that time that are worth sharing? Uh, well, there was a kind of a big one in the history. So we have um, at NC State, the last college of textiles in the nation. So a lot of them kind of went by the wayside when most of the business went offshore. And we had maintained that college of textiles and the discipline and that education for a really long time. And we had a family who um, my colleague, Michael Ward, through some of our other colleagues in central advancement had connected with. And to make a long story short, they ended up, there are three generations of textile grads and the college with you know, incredible financial support has been named um, the Wilson College of Textiles in their, um, in their name. And where was that gift when you joined? Was it in flight or did it really start from scratch? That gift, that gift is a gift that fundraisers kind of are just holy, but it's a once in a career gift. And it is also, you will spend the rest of your career explaining to leadership and the Dean that it doesn't happen like this all the time. So I believe the, the genesis and timing of it was in January um, you know, the, the, the most recent graduate, the grandson had made a gift of about a thousand dollars, which was definitely out of the range of what you see for a young grad. Um, and our central team said, Hey, we should call this person. And they reached out to Michael and, you know, on my team and said, do you know him? Let's go visit him. Let's talk with him. And the rest of it was good old fashioned development work and relationship building you know, what do you mean you haven't heard from us? Well, we're here now, come to a game. Let's introduce you to the Dean. You would love the chancellor. And it just continued to unfold. And it was under 18 months that that gift Incredible. 
I mean, you just raised such a simple, but I, I feel like it, such a missed opportunity in this sector. Maybe I'm wrong, correct me. But this idea that, you know, how do we think of the gift or the first gift as the beginning of a relationship? And I think so much from a systems perspective, uh, if a gift comes in, we send the thank you, we send the receipt, we've got some stewardship rules, but how do you then really turn every gift into qualification? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like in this instance, you know, what if the gift had only been $200? You know, what if it had been $300 or $100? Is it possible this naming opportunity wouldn't have happened? I mean, like, like, how do we make sure that it's not so random that, you know, that because the gift just looked a little bit out of place, mm -hmm. we went and did that work. But how many hundred dollar gifts come in like that with the same affinity, the same capacity, but just less of an obvious signal? And, and so that's something that I wonder, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, um, these are the thoughts that I think keep Brian and certainly Jim Brochard and, and, and at times me up at night because I think that's our greatest opportunity. We're really not talking about building for today. We're talking about the future and the pipeline, right? So some of the reason our work is more difficult today is because that was not done um, or it was done sporadically and without consistency in the past. So we have a real concerted effort around mid-level giving. Um, we've hired several leadership annual giving officers, and we're defining that as, you know, that annual gift range to up to $50,000 um, and trying to be very, very intentional about how we develop and build those relationships from the very beginning. So my hope is that he would have been um, connected with and, um, and, and brought kind of through our process in that way. But this is where it's kind of just both the art and the science. The science piece says you have to ask somebody eight times before they give to you. Um, and then the art piece is what do you do after, after they have said, yes, I will give to you, I will invest in you. And, um, you know, piece of that, Brent, is the plan giving. We've been really successful with our plan giving initiative. We have an incredible team. Um, and we're, you know, just starting to get to the point where we're looking at people who have given a hundred dollars a year for 20 years and talk to them about leaving a legacy, right? Like, or most of our plan gifts or many of our plan gifts, I should say, are people who didn't give before, or we didn't even know that we were in their estate. And so we've missed that chance to demonstrate to them what they're going to accomplish and achieve in NC state. All right. So tell me about plan giving, you know, for those who are listening and they don't really understand exactly what that entails from a higher ed perspective. Um, I, I hear like uh, constantly it comes up as being one of the greatest missed opportunities yet in 10 years, will it still be one of the greatest missed opportunities? How do we turn it into just one of the greatest realized opportunities? What's your, what's your thinking around that? Yeah. I mean, I think we have some, some departments and, and colleges that are, that are working really, really well with this and have kind of figured it out. And I think there are different, um, you know, some donors who only want to leave a planned gift and some donors who are not interested. And I also think there's a lot, um, there are more mechanisms with donor advised funds coming online and many institutions having their own, including us. I think that's an opportunity too. So it's a way for people to say, yes, I want to make a longer term investment in NC State. But 
I think what a lot of times people miss with plan giving is that um, it is truly the ultimate commitment, right? There's only a couple things that you can like that you can leave your will to. So you can leave it to us and you can leave it to your family. So to me that, you know, puts us all in the same bucket. Um, and that's pretty, that's a pretty special place to be. Um, we are doing things like uh, we have an annual event where we acknowledge our um, Poland society. That's the folks that have left a plan gift. Um, and we're also trying to do more stewardship initiatives to connect with them. What we're starting to see is some of our plan giving donors are actually open to making an annual gift to begin the impact of what they're trying to achieve in the end. So if they're leaving a money to endow a professorship, they're actually starting to give now what that will end up giving when it's fully endowed, you know, when, when they leave. And I'm guessing they do that because someone asks them to. No question. We, um, I, you know, sometimes people knock on the door and say, I'd like to give you some money, but it doesn't actually always happen that way. <laughs> um, so people were, you know, our gift officers are really experts at trying to um, accomplish what the donor wants to do. And that's typically what this stems from. The donor wants to, in some way, leave a legacy, make an impact, give back, um, and when they can't achieve what they want to with a cash gift, we talk to them about plan gifts. And when we feel like there is still an opportunity for them to see that now, then, you know, the annual gift to supplement, it makes a lot of sense. Are there any examples, like, I think people have a picture, or at least I do, of what a planned giving donor might look like, okay? And without going into that, uh, are there examples that buck maybe the conception or the misconception um, how young are people making planned gifts? I mean, are there any outliers on that side that would yeah. surprise me or our listeners? Yeah, we had a million dollar insurance policy um, donated by someone in their 40s. Wow. So without getting too in the weeds, is that like a, a whole life policy that they, I mean, how do you even know to ask somebody in their 40s if they haven't an insurance policy. So that is something we did not ask. That was something that they were like, I don't need this. And I would like to make you the beneficiary. I'll continue to make the payments. How do we set this up? And so that is as much as I can say without wow. like getting over my skis, because we have a team of gift planning experts, you know, attorneys and CPAs who do this for a living. So I tend to say, this is where you need to talk with my colleague, you know, right. David or, um, Catherine, they're the experts, but yeah. Yeah. Just in the spirit of like, so if somebody's willing to do that earlier in their forties and their fifties, um, I would imagine there's almost a risk of, well, they've already made their plan gift. So let's do our standard stewardship, but a lot can change between 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80. So to be able to go back, I mean, really just looking and saying, who are our plan gift, uh, donors, have we really gone back to re-qualify them to see has anything changed? You know, maybe they've been beneficiaries of other estates, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, any examples like that that come to yeah, mind? Yeah, certainly. And I don't mean to, you know, um, suggest that we have a lot. That is a complete outlier. But to your sure. question, um, you know, you have to be 55 to make a charitable gift annuity. Um, but your rate isn't great when you're 55 your rates much better when you're 75, if you do that. So that is something that if somebody is looking to still get income and get the tax break, we might talk with them about it. Um, there's all kinds of ways to do intergenerational tra wealth transfers. Um, so I think to your, your point, 
Um, it depends on what the person is trying to accomplish, how old they are. And I would, you know, be hard pressed to not be able to find them a solution to make a commitment to NC State and accomplish whatever their interests are at the same time. Um, with that, the age ranges are, you know, they're long. We, you, you know, you it's, I, cu I couldn't give you an average. Can I, can I ask just around, um donor engagement in this sort of post-COVID world or mid-COVID world that we're living in. It just for the listeners, it's September 30th, 2020, as we record this. Um, we have heard many anecdotes where, uh, you know, the 90-year-old is now joining Zoom calls to have conversations that previously would have had to happen, you know, in person in, in their parlor. And and we're, we're seeing greater donor engagement from populations who just literally have not physically been able to be present with us. Have you seen that at NC State? Has anything surprised you on that front? Any wins coming out of it or, or I don't know, things that have challenged your view of, of kind of in-person relationship building versus virtual? Yeah, all of those things, everything that you said. <laughs> we, um, we are seeing... Um, some, some of our donors and prospects are, um, are very, very open to connecting via Zoom. It's actually making it easier in some instances, especially when proximity is, you know, is an issue, right? Like originally you were in Boston, I was in North Carolina. It doesn't kind of matter when we have this type of conversation going, but you're, you know, you're seeing as you, you know, globetrot through the nation, <laughs> um, that you can kind of do what you need to do as long as you're as long as you're following the same kind of discipline of the process and staying true to what your purpose is. That being said, we have, you know, we have two different kinds of gift officers. The ones who are really, really kind of science-based, the ones who are, I love meeting people, I love getting them connected with NC State, I love the process of the identification and the fundraising. And the others who are more the art side of it, a little more relationship based, they let that kind of um, dictate their process, even though they still follow a process. And there are two high performers that I'm constantly thinking of who are on, um, they agree, they're both incredible fundraisers, different styles. Um, one of them is, you know, just dying to be in person as much as possible, and will do whatever they can masks outside, hand sanitizer, all of it. Um, the other one is like, I am so effective and efficient doing this. And this has really changed how we're approaching it. Um, so I think it's, it's just like anything else. It's like, how can you use that as an opportunity to keep things moving? Yeah, no, no doubt. And I think the, the, not just the staff willingness to embrace these kinds of mediums, but the donors willingness to, and how so much behavior change has been compressed into such a short timeline, um, ultimately will, I think, lead us to a more efficient future. Um, though I, I think we all agree that, you know, being able to bring back the in-person component will be meaningful. I, I do want to ask you though, I mean, you've referenced your parent, I'm a parent. Um, when I look at just the flights flown over the last three, four, five years, case conferences, on-site presentations, follow-up presentations. And then I look at where we are this year. I do have a feeling, and it may be temporary, you know, in our world, but 
there's just a lot of time that was wasted on travel, right? Or, or not wasted, but just it inherently goes with travel where you can only be so efficient during so many of those hours. And with so much of that time removed, it has felt like even if it's not quite as good as getting together for lunch in person, if you can have five or 10 of those kinds of discussions that are only a Zoom link away per day, instead of five or 10 of those, you know, per week or per month, it really can accelerate, I don't know, business, relationship building. There are definitely constraints, but I'm curious if you've seen that at all, or maybe in September, if that feels different than it did in July or uh, in, in March, for example. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about that. I think there are certain things that are, um, it's necessary to do in person. And then I think there are certain things that you can absolutely be just as effective virtually, right? Like information sharing, that kind of a thing. Um, there are people who, before this happened, we would not have had to fly across the country to, you know, close a gift with them. They would have decided to, you know, to give and they have decided to give. You don't need to waste the university's money coming out to see me. There are some folks who you absolutely need to be in front of them because they need to see you and the whites of your eyes. And that is how they operate. Right. Um, so what I think this has changed or will change moving forward is how we approach our travel strategies. Um, as opposed to having kind of what we would refer to as an anchor visit and then filling it in with others, we may actually look at some synergies and um, possible collaborations with other units. Um, so I think that'll change, but I think this is probably, I don't see anything going back to exactly as it was. And I don't think it's, it will stay exactly like this. I think it's um, yes and. Right. We'll, you know, we'll have, we'll go back to our two board meetings a year in person and textiles because we need to have those and we need to see each other and have a drink and, you know, see the Dean and the students. Um, and we've been talking about getting together more regularly. And this is the exact forum and ideal way for us to do that. Right. So I think that it will, it will, it will help us um, leverage that. You we talked about your time in textiles three and a half years and um, or, or maybe three years, a couple of years, uh, but then you were promoted to the assistant vice chancellor of university development, which is sort of the opposite, right? Really specific programs, specific foundation, seatbelts and blinds and everything, you know, <laughs> textiles, textiles, textiles to a pretty, you know, holistic purview with a broad range of offerings at the university, just what is your day-to-day -day like uh, today and kind of what is your, your purview? Yeah, uh, well, my day-to-day -day is a lot of Zoom and you know, starting to try and transition to some phone calls and occasionally in the office, which is really nice. Um, my purview with, so I report to the associate vice chancellor and he handles the, you know, the colleges and units. They have separate foundations aside from textiles and handles the roadmap and several other major initiatives. Um, I have university development, which is gift planning, uh, annual giving, central major gifts, and um, corporate and foundation relations, along with some of the other colleges and units. Um, the, uh, textiles, I already said, design, um, the division of academic and student affairs, 
college of education, pool college and management libraries. So some of those, but you know, they all have their units and they have um, their, their Dean or their academic lead that they liaise with on a daily basis. It's not, they don't require a whole lot of oversight, right? These are executive directors who know what they're doing. And for me, it's more about how, how do we, um, how do we implement some, some, uh, infrastructure that helps support their gift work. So reporting was a big initiative. We're doing the discovery initiative now. Goal setting looked a lot more systematic across the board and will help us identify some themes that each of these units is facing so that we can you know, develop strategies around them. Um, so I think that's, it's, the scope has changed. <laughs> For sure. And at the same time, as we sit here, uh, in late September, there have not been a lot of uh, really exciting, you know, positive success stories, given some of the headwinds that we've all faced with, with COVID, but uh, there is a real ray of light coming out of NC State right now, given the incredible day of giving that you and your colleagues led uh, just last week if I'm not mistaken, $23 million being raised. And I know you wanted to give Adam Compton and Jeff Bain on both specific shout outs. Um, but just tell me a little bit more about that process. Was it even, I mean, even the idea to do it, I mean, was it a challenge to decide? And, uh, you know, for others that are maybe thinking about really trying to put their foot on the gas again, any, any lessons learned? Oh my gosh, so many lessons learned. So, I think it's, um, you know, I, I, I feel like Adam and Jeff really ran the show and, and drove it. But one of the things that I said back in April was this isn't um, Adam's day of giving. It's a university, um, NC State University day of giving. So everybody from, you know, the chancellor on down was behind this initiative. However, I also think that day of giving is, you know, I, I say like life is a crossroads between if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. So Adam had been wanting to do a day of giving for five years and they were like, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. And finally last year, they were like, okay, let it rip. Go ahead, you know, get the external support you need and do it. So our first day of giving was wildly successful. We um, kind of had measure ourselves against Purdue and were very excited at our performance based on like where they had come from five to seven years before that. So we raised 13 million and we just never thought we would hit 10. We were, we were just so excited about how the units came around to it. It was a whole campus-wide initiative and we loved it. And then we were planning to do it again this past March and everybody knows what happened, right? I was up in the mountains and um, it was supposed to be March 23rd or something. And we had to make the, the call to, um, I'm glad I'm not the we, right? Like that decision is made above my pay grade, but um, to postpone it based on potentially extending spring break, which that was the longest extended spring break ever. <laughs> um, so we just had it a week ago, uh, two weeks ago, and we went into it knowing that we would beat last year and hoping that we would maybe get to 15 million. And by 10 o'clock at night, you know, Brian Cisco was like, we can do 20 million. And by midnight, it was $23 million. Um, it was really, really an incredible effort from the entire campus and our, of course, our donors and supporters and 
foundation board got into a challenge and it was hilarious and a lot of fun. So talk to me about what it means when somebody sees the headline 23 million raised, because I think sometimes people think, did $23 million really come in on online gifts of $100, you know, through Mm -hmm. credit cards. Uh, And I think one of the things you highlighted, and I think has become a big part of the giving day is it's not just about uh, the base and donor acquisition and renewal and enthusiasm, but it's also about inspiring and um, exciting your major gift supporters. So what's the mix without, you know, you don't got to share all the details, but when we see 23 million, what should we think about as far as a general breakdown? And really you talked about Sherry Buckles and Michael Ward in helping support the major gift side of things. Like what is the, the major gift strategy as part of a giving day that maybe could be a takeaway for others? So a lot, a lot packed into that question, Brent. That's a, that's a big one. Um, 23 million in major <laughs> gifts. Yeah. So I'm taking, I'm I'm kind of taken back to my days at the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And for those who are old enough to remember, there was a telethon once a year and it was Labor Day weekend and they raised all of this money. And so what happened was they raised a lot of money that weekend, but they also communicated about some money that was raised beforehand and recognized that weekend. The firefighters were recognized, all the bars that did the shamrocks and the sales and everything. That was our chance to say thank you to them and get their name in lights. And then what that did was attract many, many others to phone in and pledge and support the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Days of giving are set up very much like that. What they're meant to do is inspire action for something that you care deeply about, but would otherwise maybe not prioritize. They also, um, they also play to competition. So this tends to work really well when you have board members or fraternities and sororities who want to out fundraise each other. Um, because when you compete and win, even the loser is supporting, right? Like the greatest needs at NC State, everybody's winning. Uh, so $23 million was raised. Much of that was committed beforehand, um, ten, about $10 million, And we knew we were going to be able to acknowledge those donors um, on the day of giving. And the reason for this was because it allows us to do challenges and games throughout the day, which then help you Um, get the enthusiastic support and participation of your newer donors, who we just talked about earlier. How do you keep them engaged and entertained? Well, Purdue has done a great job of taking their day of giving from 7 million to I think like 46 million or 42 million this past, like what's 4 million among friends, right? This past September, they just did theirs. And um, I think that it is one of their greatest retention strategies. So people really look forward to this. Um, So we've had the, you know, the ability to acknowledge some of our donors, to challenge them. And there was a great need and and interest in our, uh, in our donor base and our, our boards to participate in something like this. Love it. I can't say you're good in very good company with Purdue. Cannot say enough about, Greg Cap and Amber Turner over there, and they put out some really good content around their giving day successes. So definitely uh, uh, look them up if you haven't. Um, but uh, congratulations. I mean, I guess the dust probably is just settling, but what do you do next after the $23 million day of giving? 
Um, the next one. So we're still getting through the analytics right now, right? We know our gift count was like 8,400 and last time it was 10,000. So we're taking a look at social media strategies and really trying to engage the units in that participation for March. Um, yeah, I mentioned Sherry and Michael, the two of them are, I mean, they're going to dominate again. They definitely like the competition, but I think that, um, they like it because they understand what it does for, you know, for the rest of their unit and the, and the university. And it, it sounds like um, that day is reflective of either the momentum or the untapped potential that you still see at NC State. I was pleased to hear that in the midst of what is a hiring freeze for so many, maybe that is starting to thaw um, at NC State. Where are you on the team front? Uh, if people are listening and are curious to learn more about opportunities with you and NC State, where, where should they look? That's a great question. Thank you for that. We're always looking to recruit um, great talent. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, and, you know, what attracted me to NC State was the culture and our um, can-do attitude, despite maybe not having the resources that some of the other um, institutions in our backyard have. We have, um, we have really overcome quite a lot and have been really successful. So we're right now hiring an executive director of Central Major Gifts. We're hiring an assistant director in our annual giving. Um, so uh, on, on our annual giving team, we are going to be posting for leadership annual giving positions, two or maybe three of those. So we have not taken our foot off the gas. We're really, really fortunate to have um, not only the support of our leadership, but also the expertise in financial management that allows us to continue to invest in the program. Very cool. As you think about, I don't know, where we are today, your, your career path, you've been in the higher ed you know, sector for some time now. When you think about things that at, at a sector level, not necessarily NC State specific, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and make a couple of changes, I mean, what are the things that you think really need to be addressed uh, in the sector? That's a really, um, the hard question, I think, because I've seen, I've seen it look very differently in all the different places that I've worked. I feel like um, in some places address uh, diversity in, in development had been addressed in leadership in the hospitals. Um, and in some places it hadn't really been paid as much attention to. So I think that um, leveraging all the skills and being sure that we're um, that we're using all of it to our advantage. I certainly think that social justice is, you know, is something that applies to every industry, um, and we are not unique with that. Um, I think, you know, if I could wave the magic wand, whew, I some of the smaller um, independent fundraising organizations that, um, that are born from, you know, my aunt Rosie had this, or my uncle Joey had that. I, I kind of wish that we could have a little bit more, um, efficiency in there by effectiveness. If we just invested in what was already there, um, it's a little different in higher ed, but the smaller nonprofits, I think sometimes they struggle and don't make the impact they want to because, they're either being too specific or they don't have the alignments that they need. Yeah. I mean, there's something like a, you know, well over a million nonprofits at this point. Um, and so how do you think about, you know, I think the same thing every time I hear you, you know, so-and-so starting a new nonprofit, I just, 
think to myself, is somebody else not already trying to solve that problem? And does it really make sense to try to, you know, not recreate the wheel, but make the same wheel somewhere else with partner with them and double your impact. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, Well, I want to be sensitive of time and I'm really, again, thrilled to hear the recent momentum, the idea around being able to convert that, that outlier donor who maybe is a first time supporter, you know, how much pipeline is waiting to be created out of those 8,400 gifts who just came in. Right. And I think a lot of where we're spending our time and, and, and we're trying to partner with others on our own, right. is just, you know, how do you go from 8,400 to 840 to 84 really quickly in as data driven manner as possible so that we limit the number of prospects who fall through the cracks recognizing that in an ideal world, yes, we'd love to have a personal one-on-one relationship with all 8,400. It's not possible. So on one hand, how can technology nurture as many of those relationships in as personalized of a manner as possible, while at the same time reserving our limited human-to-human, you know, hours in a day for those people who could become the next, you know, naming, uh, naming opportunity or planned gift opportunity that can really scale the impact. So that's, I think that intersection of human and technology where we're spending a lot of time. I know that it's an area of focus for you all as well, but we're, we're grateful for your, your time and perspective. Well, and we're looking forward to, you know, getting our um, feedback from the research and um, analytics team with the EverTrue platform after day of giving too. So we love the work that you're doing and you guys are helping us make those connections every day. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Carrie Bada, Assistant Vice Chancellor of NC State University, look up Carrie, check out those openings. And it's great to hear uh, that there are institutions putting their foot in the gas. And thanks for helping set a standard of what's possible, even in the midst of COVID. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Cheers. Mm-hmm.